You know, we've talked about our relationship with God the Father and how important it is that we not, uh, as it were, stymie our spiritual life, but actually follow through and cultivate that real devotion to God the Father. What broke that relationship? I mentioned to you religion, religare, means to bind back together again. And uh, so it, it involves there was a breakage there. And what broke that relationship between the human race and God the Father was pride, sin, you know, humility. And we know that the way to reforge that bond is going to be by humility. We're going to have to find the humility in us, or we're going to have to somehow, by the grace of God, restore that humility in our human souls in order to be reunited with God the Father. Now, if there's one thing that the Church tells us about the moral life, it is that all sin begins with pride. It all starts with a lack of humility. Humility is something positive. Pride is something negative. All vice is negative. All evil is something negative. It's the lack of something that should be there. All evil, all vice is a negative, and so are as it is an absence or an abscess. An abscess in creation, an abscess in our own souls of a perfection, a divine perfection that should be in our souls. And humility is a virtue, as something positive, something real in the soul, is was and enables us to know ourselves and to know God for who we really are. And without that ability to see clearly, we have a distorted view. And that distorted view is pride. And that distorted view prevents us from really knowing who we are and really who, knowing who God is. Someone asked a question about a practical atheist, someone who believes in God but lives as though he doesn't believe in God. And that's exactly the problem of pride and the lack of humility. Someone may believe in God, quote-unquote believe, have faith, that God exists. One may even believe that he is infinite perfection and goodness. And yet, when it comes down to living his own life, he has a very distorted view of his relationship with God and a very distorted view of who he is. He may believe all the doctrines the Church teaches about God, and yet, because of his pride, he cannot see who he is in relation to God. And so, he may have faith, but that lack of humility prevents him from knowing himself clearly enough to know what his real relationship is or should be to Almighty God. And so he lives as an atheist, even though he believes in theory. Speculatively or theoretically, yes, he is a quote-unquote believer, but practically, and in fact, he is an atheist in how he conducts his life. Humility is the only remedy for that. It's the only way to restore that relationship between ourselves and God. It's the only way we can see actually what that relationship is or should be. And so we need that humility. And so we're going to talk about this a little more later on, about humility and pride. But we need to see how God answered that need. I mean, God 
has to answer our need for humility in order to repair the damage. We're incapable of doing it. Um, it's sort of a chicken and egg question as to, well, how does a proud man overcome his pride by humility if his pride prevents him from being humble in the first place and blocks his humility? And so we know we need some outside and powerful intervention, and that has to come from heaven. And fortunately, we've had that powerful intervention from heaven in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacred heart, to which this month is dedicated. Now, I talked a bit about the Father's love for us, but uh, in the month of May, we, we, we dedicate a month to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart and her, her love. When we look at the relationship between the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the two devotions for which the months of May and June are dedicated, we see Our Lady's heart played a very, very great role. We know that Our Lady's heart is subordinate to the heart of Jesus, of course, because the heart of Jesus is actually the, the heart of God. It really is God's own human heart because God became human. God took human nature and he has a human heart. And uh, God's heart was stilled on the cross and opened by the spear. God's heart bled there for us. But we realize that there was a very strong connection between the heart of Jesus and the heart of Mary. And as I mentioned to you before, one of those very strong connections is that uh, before our Lord Jesus Christ had a heart, he, he shared Mary's heart. Her heart was his heart. Her heart was beating for both of them. She conceived him, when she conceived him by the power of the Holy Ghost, he had no heart. He had the only, only the potential for the heart, the developing of a heart in his human DNA. <clears throat> and over the weeks after his conception, our Lord's heart slowly far formed until, until that moment came when that heart was able to function and took it, its first beat. And uh, up until that moment, though, it was Mary's heart that kept him alive. Uh, and so we can honestly say that during that time, his heart was her heart. She shared her heart with him <clears throat> while his heart was forming within her. Now that in itself tells you how closely allied these hearts are. It's true with all of us, every one of us, came into the world this way. We had no heart when we first came into being in our mother's wombs, and our hearts had to form. And until that moment that our hearts were formed and began to be, we shared our mother's heart. But in our Lord's case, sharing the heart of Mary was very interesting because, again, the Son of God, the divine person who is Jesus Christ, was actually sharing Mary's heart with her. And that's a unique, obviously a splendid thing. And so we, we always associate the, the love of Mary with the love of Jesus in a very special way. And uh, rightly so. And um, we always associate the heart of Mary with the heart of Jesus. We, we say that Mary's love, that the Blessed Mother's love, is a unique love. 
we say that the Blessed Mother's love is unparalleled in all of creation. And we say that Mary's love is unique because there is no other creature in existence. All the way to the, the heights of heaven and the seraphim and the cherubim, there is no one, there is no love that can compare with Mary's love because her love for our Lord and ourselves, her love is unique. It is an altogether unique love because she is the only creature who can honestly and does honestly love God as she loves her own child because God became her child. And so she has a mother's love for God, something that you cannot have, something that I cannot have, no one can have. St. Joseph does not have that love. Neither does St. Michael the Archangel or St. Gabriel or St. Raphael. As I say, the greatest of the angels cannot love God as Mary loves him. It's a unique love. Now, you know this. We've talked about this before. But there's more to it than that. It's not enough. That actually still is not enough to say about Mary's love. Because there's something more. And that is, if we cannot compare Mary's love to any other love in creation, <clears throat> there is a love where we see our Blessed Lady's own love mirrors that love. Our Blessed Lady's love is a reflection or an image of that love, and it's the uncreated love of the Father for the Son from all eternity. The Father, Almighty God the Father, loves his Son with an infinitely powerful will to love. He loves his Son with an infinitely powerful love. And the Son loves his Father with that reciprocal love, that infinitely powerful love that binds them together. And that divine relationship between them, again, is unique. The Father loves the Son as the Father loves, and the Son loves the Father as the Son loves, because he takes his origin from the Father's own, his own divine being, his own divine Godhead. And uh, what this means is that if there's any love that exists anywhere, to which the love of Mary can somehow be related, be compared. It has to be the love of the father for his son. Because Mary loves, as a, a parent, loves a child. And so the love of the father for the son for all eternity is reflected somehow in a, in a finite way because Mary does not have a an infinite will to love. She cannot love infinitely, but she can love completely. And she does. She has a complete, absolutely wholehearted love for her divine son as her son and her God. And this means that her love, if it's to be compared by, to any other love in, in, in all of the world, all that exists, it can only be really most clearly reflect the love of the Father for the Son as reflected in, in Mary's love as a mother for his own child, her own child. And this uh, situates our Blessed Mother in a, in a remarkable way in God's plan for us, God's plan for us all. And we can see perhaps then also why God would exalt her even above 
the angels in heaven, given the great seraphim, that uh, Mary's love is so utterly unique and you might say redolent or an image of, of a divine love. Now, that being said, we know the, the virtue that most endeared Our Lady to Almighty God was her humility. She says that. Because of her loneliness, God has been able to exalt her. Precisely because she would say, because of my nothingness, God has exalted me. Because if you look at the, the empty space and you say, well, how much can I put in that empty space? You'd say, well, the emptier it is, the more I can fit in there. And so it is when Blessed Mother was full of grace, um, there was an enormous quantity of grace that uh, she could quote-unquote hold because of the emptiness that she saw in herself, of herself. Uh, she was completely receptive of the grace of God. It was that humility. And so we see in that the fact that only by humility can we actually restore that relationship we should have with the Father. So we need to talk about that a bit. Uh, we find that humility especially reflected in our Lord himself. You know, when the Son of God came to earth, he said, learn from me. He said, learn from me. And what did he say that we should learn from him? Uh, we should learn to create angels, as he did. We should learn to create universes, as he did. We should learn to uh, heal lepers with a word, walk on water, rise from the dead. What did our Lord say that we have to learn from him? Well, the one lesson he said we have to learn is this. He said, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. We find that the lack of that meekness and the lack of that humility of heart is the source of all of our problems. It's the source of all of our problems. It is, the, it is what puts us in danger of going to hell. So if our Lord tells us that we must learn from him meekness and humility of heart. He's telling us, learn what you need to learn to be in order to save your souls, in order to have eternal life, in order to restore that relationship that I have come to establish, re-establish between you and my father and your father. Humility and meekness, basically the practice of humility. So we look at the Sacred Heart, where we have today the octave day of the Feast of the Sacred Heart, as you know. It's also the vigil day of St. John the Baptist's feast day. They're brought together today. So we have the octave day of the Feast of the Sacred Heart. It's a perfect day to uh, consider what it is our Lord says we need to know, we need to learn in order to save our souls and really be children of God. You know, the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus actually is in the Gospel itself. We read about it in the Gospel of St. John, especially. St. John is the only apostle, you know, who's actually stood under the cross. <clears throat> and we have every reason to think that while he fled with the rest, when our Lord was taken prisoner, that it it was the sight of Mary, standing quite alone, that moved the heart of John to come forward, to come out of the shadows. Maybe as our Lord was carrying the cross, and John 
saw Mary there, that he found the love that gave him the courage to step out of the shadows and stand with her. In any case, other than Mary Magdalene, Our Lady would be quite alone under the cross. There were holy women there, but they were a little bit, a bit of distance. So John stood with Mary under the cross. That's why our Lord entrusted the Blessed Mother to his care, even as everyone was dying. But the, the image of our Lord hanging in death upon the cross and the soldier opening his, his side with his spear and blood and water flowing out, that image is only given to us, as that account is only given to us in St. John's Gospel. And, of course, many fathers and doctors of the church have written about this, many great mystics and uh, saints have written about that moment. And I see in that moment of the piercing of the heart of our Lord a pivotal moment. St. Augustine said the church was born from the heart of Jesus at that moment. Like Eve was taken from the side of the sleeping Adam long before, so the bride of God, the church, was born from the heart of Christ. And uh, the blood and the water that flowed forth represent that. The birth, the birth church being born, uh, water of baptism and the blood of the Holy Eucharist. Well, St. Augustine was a, a man who um, was slow to convert, but when he did, he converted quite thoroughly, as you know. He had a devotion to the heart of our Lord. He spoke of the heart of our Lord. It was something that impressed him very much. St. Augustine must have been rather a passionate individual, which could have been a real obstacle to his conversion at first. But when he was converted, it became a vehicle for us to, to learn, to learn from him. Uh, St. Augustine invented an entire new genre of literature, of literature in writing his confessions. He poured out his heart. And being a rhetorician and a man who knew how to express himself in a powerful way, he must have had some very powerful thoughts and very powerful feelings. If you read his writings, you find those feelings and those thoughts there. Among those feelings and those thoughts, which are very powerful in St. Augustine, was the devotion to the heart of Jesus. So that um, the, the images of St. Augustine often show him holding aloft the heart of our Lord, the Sacred Heart, and then contemplating it with all this is focused on the heart of our Lord. St. Augustine, as you know, uh, was born in the year 354 in, in uh, Tagaste in uh, northern Africa. And he, he died there in Hippo in the year 430. So his life actually spans the 4th and 5th centuries. But already then we find a developing devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And we could then go forward through the centuries and we come to another great light, someone who mystically was connected with the heart of our Lord, and that is St. Gertrude in Germany. St. Gertrude was a Benedictine nun, an actual contemplative sister, nun. And uh, she had a great devotion to our Lord. Of course, she inherited it. She didn't invent it. She received it from the generations of Catholics before her. But in her, it was a devotion that burned very brightly. And um, she had revelations from God about the love of our Lord, 
represented by the Sacred Heart, actually in the Sacred Heart itself, as part of the, the, uh, the human makeup of the Son of God who became man, our Lord revealed through his heart his love to her. And St. Gertrude Evans asked if when at the Last Supper our Lord reclined with the, last, with the apostles and we're told that our Lord actually lay his head upon the breast of St. John the Baptist, St. John, I'm sorry, the Apostle, which would not have been that unusual because they did not sit in chairs at the table, they reclined there. If uh, St. John, when St. John had actually laid his head, uh, was so near to our Lord, if he had heard our Lord's heart beating, and he was aware of that, and St. John told her that, yes, he had, he heard the beating heart of our Lord, and she asked him why he did not speak of it then and uh, promote devotion to the heart of Jesus then. And St. John's answer to her was, because this devotion is reserved for the latter times of the world when the world would have grown so cold toward the love of God that the devotion to the Sacred Heart would be reserved, as it were, to be unveiled at that time. So St. Gertrude took this very seriously, and, uh, well, she should have. It animated her life. And we continue on in history, and we find an echo of St. Gertrude's devotion in the heart of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque in France in the 1680s, when our Lord appeared to this young religious and actually showed her his heart and actually held his heart before her, for her for her to see, and he said to her, Behold, behold, look, look at this heart, which has so loved mankind, and which is rewarded with so much forgetfulness and negligence and contempt. Contempt. If there's a word that applies to this month in our time, it is that contempt, really. So St. Uh, Margaret Mary, of course, also was greatly devoted to our Lord's heart, he wanted to spread devotion to our Lord's heart as more than a symbol, as really the heart of God, substantially united to the Son of God. And so we come down to our own day. We find that in modern times, the Sacred Heart of Jesus has become very controversial. That's not surprising. It is vilified, mocked, and ridiculed. That is not surprising. When we realize that when our Blessed Mother carried the Christ child into the temple, there was a prophet named Simeon there who had been given the promise that he would not die until he had actually seen the Redeemer. And he recognized him right away. And Mary put him in the arms of Simeon. And Simeon predicted there that Mary's own heart, a sword would pierce, but he would pierce, so he predicted a sorrow. But the sorrow was this, that her child would be a sign of contradiction, a sign that would be contradicted, that because of him, many would fall and many would rise or resurrect in Israel, whether they rejected him or chose him. 
And again, he would be a sign of contradiction. We see that in our own day. There was, as devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus developed more and more through the agency of such saints as Augustine and, and Gertrude and Mary, Margaret Mary, the enemies of the church manifested themselves in a hatred, a hatred for our Lord. And they focused that hatred on the image of his sacred heart. Not surprisingly, we find the Jansenists, the Protestants and Jansenists, were actually offended by this idea. Especially the, the Jansenists militated against it because they thought it was becoming a little too familiar with God and his love. It's almost as if the Jansenists wanted to revert back to the times of the Old Testament when we were under sin, under the old law, and no one would call, dare call God Father. And so they militated against the image of the Sacred Heart. And that led them into a bitter, bitter enmity toward the Jesuits. The Jesuits, as they were established in the 1500s by St. Ignatius of Loyola, were very devoted to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. That was their great devotion. They had a great devotion to the Holy Name and had great devotion to the Sacred Heart. In fact, as the Jesuits grew in numbers and scholarship, because they were the scholars of the day, they were the great educators of the 1600s, 1700s. As the Jesuit order grew very rapidly and men flocked to them to devote their lives to be within the company of Jesus, that's what their actual title is, the company of Jesus. Um, they were unsurpassed in their studies of theology, philosophy, philosophy, including the natural sciences. Many great scientists came from among the Jesuit order in those days. They were motivated by a love for God and a confidence that God had made us to know him and to know him through his creation, not only through faith, by reason also. And they devoted their intellectual powers to explain the creation that God had made all with the intention of inspiring devotion and wonderment uh, in, in us. And so when they filled their libraries with scholarly works, they would set as the frontispiece, the frontispiece is the, the, an image which faces the title page, and the frontispiece of all of their works, all of the Jesuit works, show the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. The Jesuit works in those days were graced with the, the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the very front of every volume. And this incited the animosity of those who were horrified, disgusted, contemptuous of that image. It's almost as though they resented the love of God. It's almost as though they resented the incarnation, which gave God a human heart. And so they had this kind of hellish, hellish anger toward the Jesuits and their devotion to the Sacred Heart. 
They were determined to destroy them. As I mentioned to you before, Voltaire, a man who was baptized Catholic, Francois-Marie Arouet was his name. Francois-Marie Arouet. A beautiful name, actually. But a tragedy that it was not to be Saint Francois-Marie, but was to be a, an inveterate enemy of Christ and his church who devoted his life to wanting to destroy the church, signing his letters, Écrasez l'enfant, crush the wretched thing, the church, devoted his life to trying to make the very memory of Jesus Christ disappear from the face of the earth. That's what he said. That's what the leader of the Masons, who wrote the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita, said, our goal is that of Voltaire, he said, to make the memory of Christ disappear from the face of the earth so that nobody even remembers him. And so Voltaire said, if you want to destroy the church, you have to start by destroying the Jesuits. Start there. 1600 or so, he, he gave that as the objective. You know, the, the immediate objective, destroy the Jesuits. The ultimate objective, destroy the church. And so those who followed Voltaire and his hatred of God those who followed him took to heart what he had to say, and they began to apply it. They applied it to the sacred heart of our Lord, too. So you have the Jansenists, who uh, actually insinuated themselves in the courts, heretics as they were, they insinuated themselves in the courts of the most Christian kings of France and Spain and Portugal. And often they became the lawyers, they became the legists. And they had a certain amount of power, obviously, in the courts as the king's lawyers. They were used by the prime ministers of France and Spain and Portugal, who were Freemasons. You think of the notorious, the Marquis de Pombal, a no notorious Mason, but he had compatriots also in the other royal courts. And they joined forces with the Jansenists, the Legists, and they succeeded in getting the Jesuit order disbanded and dis dis it barred, actually, from all the realms of France and Spain and Portugal, all their colonies. And so around the world, soldiers began to appear, and they would round up the Jesuit missionaries and they would lead them off at bayonet point onto ships and ship them off. Some of those simply the human cargo of the Jesuits who had been criminalized now would be thrown overboard off the coast of Africa. And those who survived would do so by swimming for their lives. Only to be swallowed by the jungle, not by the sea. It was that bad. That's how the Franciscans came to California. The Jesuits, who had been the missionaries there, were rounded up and taken away. So the real objective, the great objective, though, was not merely to have the Jesuits crushed in France and its colonies, Spain and its colonies, and Portugal and its colonies, Brazil. The great objective was to have the church 
destroy the Jesuits, simply annihilate them altogether. There was a pope, became pope, I think, in 1918, what was it, 1865, perhaps, anyway, or maybe about 1860. His name was Clement XIII. He was a very brave soul. The Masons did everything they could, especially through the royal governments of France and Spain and Portugal again, did everything they could to bring pressure upon Clement XIII to suppress the Jesuits. But Clement XIII was a real pope. He was a real vicar of Christ on earth. No amount of pressure could move him. Rather, rather than giving them the Masons what they wanted, he actually granted the bishops of Poland what they wanted. They wanted a national feast day of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Pope, Pope Clement XIII granted them that. It was the beginning of the development under St. John Eudes of the devotion to the hearts of Jesus and Mary. And that was the first great breakthrough liturgically uh, where it was established by the bishops of Poland. And Poland was quite extensive at that time and quite powerful. The Masons did not like Clement XIII, though. But when Clement XIII died, there was elected after him, I think that was in 1869, a pope who took the name of Clement XIV. And he was completely dominated by the Masons. Clement XIV, whose family name was Ganganelli, granted the Masons what they wanted, the great prize. They wanted the death of the Jesuits. Ganganelli, Clement XIV, gave them their wish. He decreed the end of the Jesuit order once and for all. He's, it's ironic, you know, you read the document that he wrote suppressing the Jesuits because they were good, because they were Catholic, actually. That's why the Masons wanted them destroyed. Ganganelli gave to Voltaire the prize. You want to destroy the church? Start by destroying the Jesuits. He started it. Curiously enough, when he wrote the document and he explained why he was suppressing the Jesuits, he gave a few rather weak arguments, which he obviously saw were very weak. But then he said, and reasons kept only in our own hearts. So he wasn't actually going to tell what was really happening. He was concealing the real reasons. He was being threatened by the Masons. And he caved in. He suppressed the Jesuits. And now the Jesuits throughout the entire world were suppressed. It's, it's ironic, but also a tribute to the Jesuits who were in the realm of uh, Prussia under Frederick the great so-called, who was a, an avowed enemy of the church, and Catherine the Great, again, Orthodox uh, in Russia, that the Jesuits were actually kept on by these two anti-Catholic monarchs because their services were considered to be too invaluable in their colleges and universities. But everywhere else, wherever there was a Catholic king or prince, the Jesuits were annihilated. Well, when the church 
under Clement XIV, decreed the death of the Jesuits, that was like sounding a signal to the enemies of the church. And they went on a rampage. They, they rampaged through the houses of the Jesuits, especially through their libraries. They were looking for something in the Jesuit libraries that they hated with a passion. And they ransacked the libraries, opened the books, found the images of the Sacred Heart, and tore them to shreds, tore them to pieces. Everywhere they went, the libraries were... That particular page of each volume was destroyed. It was diabolical, really, you know. We shouldn't be surprised, then, to find out that about 130 years later, maybe, the head of the Masons in Italy, who took the name of Nubius as his nom de guerre, his, his secret name, code name, Nubius wrote in the document that we now know as the permanent instruction of the Alta Medita, that the Masons needed to secure a pope according to their needs. They wanted to gain control of the church so that they could use the church as the vehicle to set the entire world on fire with revolution, he said, their revolution, their anti-Christian, anti-Christ, anti-God revolution. So he said, we need to find a man we can somehow have raised to the papacy in the Catholic Church, and then everyone will obey him. Some will even die for him in our cause, the cause of the Masons. And in saying this, he actually mapped out not only the plan, but even gave the image of the, of the man they would need. And you know who he named? Ganganelli. He named Clement XIV. He said, we need a pope like him. We need another one just like him. Why? Because we could control him. How? By threats and by flattery by threats and by flattery. He would be a vain man who could be flattered and controlled by flattery, and he would be a weak man without fortitude, and he could be controlled and bullied by threats. And that means he will do our will. That's exactly the, the formula prescribed. We have to infiltrate the church, he said, in order to get such a man recognized by Catholics as the Vicar of Christ for them. And then he says, we will have achieved the revolution en permanence, he says, the everlasting, the permanent, ongoing revolution. Well, why am I mentioning this to you? Because the sign of contradiction is that Sacred Heart of Jesus. And that Sacred Heart of Jesus is today in this world, it is the sign of contradiction. And Catholics had to fight for that, and they did. And they did fight for it. Many of them gave their lives for that. Fighting for the Sacred Heart in its reality and its image here and all that that represents, they gave their life for that. Well, now, the battle comes to us. 
Now it is our turn, and we have to fight for that. Now it is up to us to fight for that. The first thing we have to do, though, in order to actually be good warriors for the Sacred Heart is to appreciate the Sacred Heart of Jesus for what it is, the, the heart of Almighty God, a heart that he took to himself precisely to live as we live, to live with us, to live for us, and as I've said before, to, to give his life for us in order to give his life to us. That's what he came to do. And we have to see that in, in the Sacred Heart of Jesus, in that emblem there. So it encapsulates everything we have to believe, everything we have to hope for, everything we have to live, love. But more importantly, it encapsulates there uh, the love of God for us. And we have to honor that Sacred Heart in that way. Now, the best way, in fact, the only way, the only way, really, we can honor that sacred heart is by learning from it. And when our Lord says, learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, that's the program. There's the assignment. You know? That is the job we have to do. That's the one thing we have to learn. And that meekness and humility of heart will give us the courage of lions to stand up for what we, what we love because it will enable us to not be timid and weak like a ganganelli who can be flattered or threatened into submission. The love of the Sacred Heart will prevent that from happening to you, from being able to be controlled by flattery of the world, by vanity, be controlled by threats, fear of the world. It is the one thing that I can actually can inoculate us, actually make us immune from the prideful, sinful disease of the world. So ask our Lord for that devotion. Let's come to instill in you a great devotion in your heart, a great devotion for his heart. Um, ask our Blessed Mother also to pray for you, or pray with you, I should say, for that, for that great devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and that you never waver in that. Now, when we come back together again later on this evening, I think it's, yes, it's this easy evening we'll meet again. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about, about uh, humility and pride, therefore, uh, we need to talk about also anxiety and the cause for anxiety and how it manifests itself in men. Women, we think, are given to anxiety, and they are often. They worry about a lot of things. They worry about security and all the rest. And anxiety manifests itself in them in a certain way. But men also are subject to anxiety as well. It just manifests itself differently. It affects them differently. And they display differently the anxiety that is working on them. And so I need to, to look at that, see what the remedy is for that. So uh, in the conference ahead, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that tonight, and then, of course, there is tomorrow as well.